Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to beat you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's featured release is Echo from a Bayou by J. Luke Benneke. All right, everybody, we'll see how this is going to go. Lucy is in the house with me. Her collar is off, so hopefully she'll stay quiet. Chapter 1, John Bastion, November 8th, 2016, Mammoth Mountain, California. I had never seen so many angry trees in one place. Through a gondola window covered with spider cracks, ominous mountains loomed in the darkened distance. One peak in particular, a white snow-capped giant, laughed at me with his frozen face and pointed pines. Pompous with knowledge, he had risen to life, fallen, and rebirthed his dominance over countless millennia. Ignoring the familiar tug to spiral down another rabbit hole of negativity, I instead envisioned myself racing down a crazy steep, treeless, triple black diamond slope at the summit of Mammoth Mountain, Huevos Grande. Passengers continued to pack inside the already full car, oblivious to our collective need to breathe oxygen, already limited in the high altitude air that smelled like sweaty gym socks. I don't see you wearing no helmet, Kevin said. Enough about Sony Bono already. That was a long time ago, I said, glancing down at Kevin, who, at a foot shorter than me, sported matching black ski pants and a jacket with a rainbow-colored voodoo doll embroidered on the back. The snowboarding boots boosted his height to by two inches, bringing his height up to five foot five inches. My closest friend for the last two decades, and the best man at a wedding of my disaster of a marriage, we met at track practice during senior year of high school. With my last shred of patience wearing thin, I waited with Kevin in the front corner of the room-sized orange cube near the sliding doors. Skis propped and steadied with one hand, I gave his down-insulated shoulder a friendly punch with the other and said, stay positive, man. We need as much optimism as we can handle. Glad you finally getting your head out of them clouds, Kevin said. Sooner you forgive Margaret, the sooner you can get on with your life, Johnny Jackass. You know I hate it when you call me that, I said. Exactly, he replied. Two months ago, he suggested this trip to some of California's highest slopes in order to check off the last item on our midlife crisis bucket list. One final group of skiers jammed inside, jerking the box that would soon glide us up to the peak. My heart flopped around inside my chest as I ignored the instinctive urge to go back to our room and double down on bourbon. Instead, I adjusted my black beanie, giving Kevin a forced smile. A tinge of alcohol withdrawal headache pinged my noggin. I dug out two Tylenol gel caps from my inner jacket pocket, popped them into my mouth, and swallowed without water. I tightened my lips and turned my head, glancing through a different gondola window up to the 11,000-foot peak riddled with wide, white, invincible slopes. But a shiver crawled up my legs to my neck, deflating any remnants of confidence. 
I tapped open a weather app on my phone. This might be the last run, I said. There's a huge storefront almost here. Word, Kevin said. We both enjoyed the occasional humorous embellishment of stereotypical hip-hop culture, even though Kevin had two master's degrees from Berkeley, one in American history, another in theater arts. After separating from Margaret three years ago, the entire divorce process continually marinated in my head, but I wanted, no, I needed, to lick my mental wounds, get on with my life, and find a new purpose, hence agreeing to this trip. Heads bobbed along with other snow enthusiasts, along with a colorful assortment of mirror goggles and insulated garments. My height allowed me an unobstructed view of my fellow sardines. Think of all the times I said it was supposed to rain back home in Newport Beach, I said. Nothing, just a few drops here or there. Damn drought's horrible though. A man with dark, heavy-lidded eyes stood five feet away from us in the rear of the gondola, wearing a baby blue sweater and black jeans. Then, for no apparent reason, he started tapping his forehead repeatedly on the gondola wall. Dude wore no ski jacket, no ski pants. Odd. Short and thin-framed as he rubbed the nape of his neck, his entire presence screamed of fear and anger. Black-rimmed glasses sat atop his nose, above a thick Freddie Mercury mustache, his face flush red. Kevin bounced up and down several times, arms crossed, rubbing his outer shoulders, probably to increase his blood flow. Too much caffeine for him. Again. So tell me about this good news you got, Kevin whispered, shivering. The primary reason we'd listed this ski trip on our bucket list five years ago was an excuse to spend some bro time away from work, away from our real lives. Now, it served as a way for me to hide from my memories of Margaret, but it wasn't working. Leaning in close to Kevin to make sure nobody else heard our discussion, I said, we got a real big real estate deal set to close on a sweet piece of beachfront commercial property, killer views. And with that single commission, I'm planning to rebuild my brokerage. A thought wandered into my mind of creamy, smooth whiskey flowing gently over my tongue and down into my gut, something to soothe my frayed nerves. Kevin smiled with his huge, toothy grin and jumped again. Now that's what I'm talking about. I don't know why, but the overall appearance of the mustached man in the corner, coupled with his darting glances and multiple throat clearings, what gave me the willies. I turned away, trying to ignore him and his negative vibes. Finally, the line to the gondola had shriveled to two skiers, a mother and her young son. The kid had a smile the size of a crescent moon as he crossed the threshold from the loading platform to the gondola, but his boots snagged on the lip of the doorway. He landed hard on his knees in front of me, and with a loud grunt, he rolled to his side. I leaned down, extended my arm, and helped the hundred-pound fellow to his feet. The kid smiled and thanked me, and I patted him on the back. No worries, I said. His mother placed her hand over her chest and gave me a thankful glance. A pleasant warmth filled my heart. The lady in charge of the gondola stuck her head inside and gave a brief speech about the trip, lasting 15 minutes, staying inside the safety areas, avoiding the out-of-bound markers, and, oh yeah, something about having fun. What's up with this cracked window? A man interrupted with a raised voice. 
pointing to the rear window. It's scheduled for repair tomorrow, she said. Jesus, the man muttered to himself, waving off the woman. Seconds later, the door slid shut and we started our ascent. Halfway up to Mammoth's highest ridge, the inside of my right shoulder started throbbing, strong like never before. After dropping 40 pounds over the last six months, every joint of my now 200 pound frame ached and moaned whenever I moved. I hoped the Tylenol would work its magic soon. A loud metal on metal screeching noise filled the air and with a thuttering thud, the hall cable crashed to a dead stop. Everyone covered their ears. Our car continued its forward momentum. We swayed up, peaked, and arched backward like a giant, slow-moving pendulum on an old grandfather clock. Passengers screamed. I braced my back against the gondola wall and scanned the surface of the sea of 40 or so shuffling, mumbling human souls, all of us suspended midair and clinging to life by a thin, wobbly, and probably frayed cable. I craned my head and peeked downward, and oh, I immediately wish I hadn't. My stomach lurched. A jagged, rocky crevasse stared back at me from hundreds of feet below us. I knew we shouldn't have come today, a woman said. Emergency amber lights flashed, and a broken tin can voice shot from inside a speaker. Worry, got down soon. Sorry for, thank you. Human voices mumbled. Our car continued to sway back and forth. Kevin stared at me with rapidly bringing, blinking eyes. Wire tension ebbed and flowed, bobbing us up and down. The mustached man, standing in the opposite corner of the gondola, he rubbed his temples, bared an assortment of mangled teeth, and banged his fist several times against his forehead. His eyes darted left and right, he squatted, and I lost sight of him behind a rather hefty woman wearing an all-pink jumpsuit. I leaned down toward Kevin. Something is wrong with that dude. Well, there you have it. That is the first chapter of Echo from a Bayou by J. Luke Benneke. It was released from JTech Publishing and is being promoted by Partners in Crime Tours. It's now available from Amazon and other book retailers. So... Let's learn a little bit about our author. J. Luke Benneke, a master civil engineer, became an award-winning author, philanthropist, and daredevil pilot amidst the concrete jungles of Southern California. While constructing bridges and highways, Benneke secretly plotted high-octane thrillers that became instant bestsellers. But his adventures did not end there. As a licensed real estate broker and general contractor, he built homes with the precision of a ninja all while jetting off to exotic destinations, voiceover acting, and giving back to the community via annual high school scholarships. Living in the shadows of Cherry Valley, California, Benneke's next daring escapade is always just around the corner. All right, so here is my review. I can scroll down a little bit. So Echo from a Bayou is a paranormal suspense. John Bastian went headfirst into a tree. That obviously didn't happen in the first chapter. You got to keep reading. He woke up from a coma, and yeah, he could see dead people. Even weirder, John woke with memories of a war he never fought in, a career he never had, and a wife he never kissed. 
Flash is hinted at a map leading to a treasure and an axe leading to the death of a man who John was, Jack Bachman. Now John is on the hunt for the treasure, his murderer, and the woman he left behind. Bottom line, Echo from a Bayou is for you if you like your suspense steeped in the supernatural, pays to draw out the good stuff, and finishing with one of the best eerie endings you've ever seen. All right, strengths of the story. From the start, the premise of the story grabs you. This isn't a typical time travel type story, but a well-reasoned reincarnation story. This is not only a unique spin on the supernatural genre, but eliminates all the problems of logic stability that is inherent in time travel. The characters are also winners. John slash Jack is an ordinary man put in extraordinary circumstances. He doesn't flip a switch and go into hero mode, but is slowly driven there by memories and urges that his rational mind just has to justify. The best friend, Kevin, who you met, is an excellent comedic relief, and the bad guy, Scott, is complex. Just because he's evil doesn't mean he's always an asshole. The pacing matches the expectations set with suspense. You really heard this in the first chapter. Certainly some scenes hit the thriller level, but overall this is one where you sit back and enjoy until you have to read faster because the shit is hitting the fan. All right, where did the story fall short of ideal? Having finished this book several days ago and revisited the plot, this is a really solid suspense. There's very little to pick on here. If you like thriller style, thriller style pacing, you might find this a bit slow, but again, the pacing is spot on for a suspense genre. While I totally loved the end, I did have one question for the author on the how and why it happened that way. Regardless of his answer, this is at the top of my list for cool ways to finish a book. So that is my review. That is Echo from a Bayou by Luke Benneke. Buy it, read it, post your review, share it with a friend. It is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours, who represents a network of over 300 bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, Miller, Miller, <laughs> crime, history, and thriller, otherwise known as Miller, writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, PICT serves well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out in their careers. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. The link is in the show notes. So with that, join us next week for Ken Harris's contribution of Mysteries to Die For, Things That Go Jack in the Night Season. It's titled, Live Free or Die Jacking. And the jack is exactly what you think it is. So thanks everyone for listening. Keep reading, keep listening, and we will see you in a week. Jack, take us out.